Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. Good to be here with you with a one-week break after Easter. Sorry we missed you last week. Uh, we're excited to be back here, joined by Bill Mayer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. And we're also joined by an unusual buzz. That's okay. Maybe they won't actually hear it. Maybe. Maybe it's just us that's hearing it. I don't know. I hope so. Well, we are in a different room recording today, so we're going to call it ground noise. And uh, I, you probably didn't even notice if it is there until now when I pointed it out. But it'll probably go away in your thinking and in your minds, or maybe you don't hear it at all. But what's important is that we are jumping into some questions from our Christchurch family members and continuing our conversation as we binge the Bible in six months. Last week, we passed over day 92 and the halfway point, and we've spent the last week and a half or so reading in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and this week, uh, Ecclesiastes. We don't have any questions from Ecclesiastes that have come in yet, but I presume there will be some as we've just begun reading. And I wanted to just point out, uh, as I finished reading Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, this book has an unusual title, and it's typical, and it's important for you to understand the manner by which our scriptures in English came into our hands, because the original title of the book is Kohelet, which is the teacher, and Ecclesiastes is a Latin transliteration of a Greek word that is associated with the Hebrew concept of a teacher, and so um, Solomon, the believed author here, identifies himself as the king of Israel and the son of David, but calls himself Koholet instead of um, Solomon, and that's the teacher. And that's the point of the, the uh, book, is teaching you the principles of wisdom from understanding a relationship with the Lord and having meaning and purpose and value that stems from a relationship with the Lord, regardless of your lot in life, your station, your season, uh, what, you, what you're called to do, um, what kind of suffering you're going through, what kind of enjoyment you can have. And so that's what the book's kind of about. So I, I look forward to your questions on Ecclesiastes. But um, I, I wanted to um, just use this as an opportunity to remind all of us that uh, we need a teacher. We need a teacher. Tiffany's reading a book by uh, Dallas Willard and John Ortberg in which she shared this quote with me. We humans are the kind of beings that have to be taught, whether it's to play the piano or tennis or to live. We learn first from our parents and then from other folks around us, our coworkers, our boss, our culture. The difficulty is that, especially in our day, when we have decided that authority is suspect, we don't think of ourselves as having to learn how to live. And so we rarely ask ourselves the question, who has a mastered life? Who is worthy of being the teacher that I sit under? Many people think of Jesus as our Savior, as the one who will get us into heaven. So the question often, often is, have I accepted Jesus as my Savior? But we rarely ask the question, have I accepted Jesus as my teacher? And that's the real question. With the disciples, it began there. They began by accepting him as their teacher and then accepting him as their Savior, which included, of course, their eternal destiny, which was a natural outflow of that. But they started with Jesus as their teacher because we all have to learn how to live. And I just wanted to mention this because like, we have made a point to have a mission statement as a church that centers around the word disciple, that we exist to be and become disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. And so he's the one that we're learning from. He's our teacher. And we're seeking to really learn from him. And that means there's things that we don't know, that we need to have a disposition of humility and a curiosity about life. But also we're looking to him as a model for how to live, how to relate to God, how to relate to the world around us. And his lifestyle is one of complete dependence, uh, willing subjection to the, the kingship of God, his father. This is what makes him the right person to be king of the universe. Uh, his life is one of faithfulness, regardless of adversity. He's one of obedience, uh, even to the point of death. And so the Christian life is a life of learning. And part of the reason that we've added that becoming in there is because it is a process. 
we start learning from Jesus wherever it is we are. We can't start from where we're not. And so we're trying to create a community of people who are focused on the person of Christ. Uh, we're not focused on the church. We're not focused on uh, our, me as our primary Bible teacher. We're not focused on the leaders of the church and ministry leaders and so on and so forth, staff, elder board members. We're really focused together collectively on learning from Jesus together and having that move us from where we've started in our relationship with him to where he wants to take us. And so we all have this kind of collective relationship with the Lord, and it's a learning relationship. And so one of the reasons why we spend so much time on Sundays uh, with preaching and reading scripture, why I'm challenging you and provoking everyone to read the Bible in six months, and not just once through so you can say you did it, but to start to cultivate a habit of daily spending 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes uh, in the scriptures um, reading. And I'm sure you've noticed, like me, these past few weeks as we've been in books like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Psalms, these are meditative books. Uh, they're very hard to read 11 Psalms. It, like your your spirit and your body and your mind should want to stop and think about one verse for a really long time. And so it's been kind of um, exhausting, mentally exhausting for me to try to like plow through Proverbs, for instance, because it's just nugget after nugget after nugget. And sometimes you're moving from one topic to another, one application to another. But these were never meant to be read this way. So lots of the Bible's narrative, and it's really helpful to read it this way. But the parts we've been in recently, Ecclesiastes especially, Proverbs especially, and even the Psalms, um, they, they, they need to be like meditated on. And the same with Job. Job, you do need to read like narrative because it is a long story with long um, monologues one at a time. And then obviously the big dialogue between Job and God. But it's also wisdom literature, so you're supposed to stop and think about it. There's all these truth claims being made by Job's friends. There's this frustration of not being God and not understanding the purpose and the source of suffering. And so you're supposed to really come to some hard places in your mind and then just sit there and dwell on it. And then you should be approaching the end chapters of Job with a lot of questions in open hands. And then that interaction with God doesn't necessarily answer those questions, but it closes our hands around what can be known. And that is that we can hold on to the goodness and faithfulness of God, regardless of our human experience. And so I say all that to say, like, we do need a teacher. And God has given us his word. He's poured out his Holy Spirit into us. And he's calling us into a daily dependent and interactive life of learning and changing. And so I don't know why everybody goes to church. I don't know if people feel good going, if they feel like it's the right thing to do, if there's a certain part of it you enjoy. But it's not just about church for us as Christians. It's about this daily dependent, transformative relationship with Jesus that is being lived out collectively. And that's going to require um, acceptance and forbearance. And um, yeah, there's going to be diversity of experience. And uh, it's, it's not, this is not a customizable, consumer-driven experience. This is a very uh, gritty, relational transformative experience. And so the church ought to feel a whole lot more like a hospital waiting room than a cruise ship. And so I just wanted to take this opportunity as we consider uh, the slow, um, meaningful diet of reading Ecclesiastes and our need for a teacher to point to, we have Jesus as a teacher. He's not, he is our savior. He is our King. He is our Lord. Uh, he is the source of our hope, but he, he is there present every single day to lead and to instruct and to transform any person who will genuinely come to him with with faith in in this disposition that the old testament calls the fear of the lord so however you're reading whatever you're reading i just want to remind you it's not about getting through the bible it's not about following along um keeping keeping your your uh, streak alive on the bible app it's not about um even church i mean we're, we're doing this thing because god's called us to and we're going to keep worshiping him. He is worthy. We're going to keep leaning in. We're going to follow his rhythms of, of rest and, and um, dedication and, and, and worship. We're going, to, we're going to do these things. We're not going to stop, but it's about him. And, and that's something that you can experience every single day uh, when you open his word, when you open your heart to receive. So I was reminded of that this morning. I wanted to share that with you before we jump in. We, I did want to back up a little bit. I got one specific question late late in the game, and this is my, my way again of reminding everybody that it's not about plowing through the scriptures and being on, on top of the list. 
Um, I'm staying up to date, obviously, but um, there's several that people who I'm talking with regularly who are right there or even ahead, and that's awesome. But if you are still plugging along and you're a little several days behind or several weeks behind, do not feel bad. So I want to reward one of our uh, followers with their question from Second Chronicles uh, by going back in time to answer this specific question. It's a good question. Here's the question. Uh, Let's see. Where did I put it? Right here. Okay. So get this email from John. And John says, Josiah followed the Lord diligently. And when Hilkiah found the book of God's law at the temple, saying that God was going to punish them severely for their disobedience, and the prophetess, Hilda, Hilda, proclaimed to Josiah, but don't worry, and here's the quote, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place because of his tender heart and obedience to the Lord. And then he says, but in chapter 35, he's killed with arrows. What the heck? I sure don't understand. So this is a great question. And these are the questions that when you read your Bible thoughtfully, you ought to be asking. You go, okay, God said this one thing and this other thing happened. What's the explanation? Now, I just want to walk you through the explanation. And for everybody listening, this is just a great way of understanding when those tensions occur in the scripture. You ask a question like that. You don't have to say, oh, God said it, so I'm just going to accept it. And I'm just going to move forward and not and try to put my question to rest. Like there's great answers when you let the scriptures provoke a question and then you go back looking for the answer. So here's an example of how that's done. So second Chronicles 34, 25 to 28 and bill pop in anytime you want. Um, here's what it says, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. So this is God saying, I'm not changing my mind on this. This is going to happen. Now, of course this does happen in 586 BC, when the kingdom of Judah is attacked by Babylon and the deportation and exile takes place, and that was fixed. However, God had made a promise to the good kings that he would preserve them, and so he pushes off judgment in the short term, and he does so in response to the individual kings, in this case, Josiah, verse 26. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. So now I'm, now God's addressing through the prophet, specifically Josiah. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and in its inhabitants, and they brought word back to the king. So this is the prophet showing that God's uh, intention, his fixed intention, is to bring judgment for generations of unbelief, and that that judgment will come, and mercy individually to Josiah because of his disposition as king, the eventual wrath of God would fall, but only after the death of Josiah. And so Josiah would see peace during his life and reign and not this um, impending doom that is being forecast. So that's what the message uh, through the prophet is in chapter 34. Now, when you get to chapter 35, Josiah does end up dying, but the reason he ends up dying is because he doesn't believe or respond to the word of the Lord um, as it relates to um, Nico, king of Egypt, when he's going up to fight at the Euphrates. And so Josiah goes out to stop him, and that was not God's purpose. And so Josiah comes to an early demise because he was acting. He doesn't seek the Lord here. He doesn't. God is doing a thing, and instead of him inquiring of the Lord, he makes a decision, and he moves forward with it. And so this isn't uh, showing a non-fulfillment of God's promise because God did not bring the calamity upon Israel that he intends to bring during Josiah's lifetime, but it also shows that doesn't mean you're now permanently exempt from all forms of judgment and what you do doesn't matter because God said a thing one time. Does this make sense? So here we have um, Josiah does in fact see peace in the sense that he doesn't experience himself the judgment that comes um, generations later, but he does experience judgment as he is not the king that Israel is looking for. He is not the perfect, submitted, uh, subjected, dependent, uh, perfect God, man, king, that is Jesus. And so this is the way his life ended. And you see this as a pattern through all of the kings, especially the good kings. They were really good and did some great things. And then ultimately they died. Ultimately, there was some chink in their armor and there was some failure in them um, because all of them were not the king that we needed. Hope that answers your question, John. 
Um, great observation and finding those tensions in the text and asking those questions and then going back to read both of those two things together is a great way of finding answers and kind of solving the problems that emerge from this reading of the text. Good stuff. Okay, so moving forward, let's talk about Job. Uh, Job's a fascinating book. We didn't really cover it in the last podcast for time's sake. And I did mention that I preached a whole summer through Job in a series called Surprised by God. And really, we didn't read every bit of the text, but we read large sections of the text um, and summary versions that really represented the whole. And so as we read it this time, uh, it really is a, a, a wonderful book to read through at the pace that we read it through because you really can kind of take in and hold all the pieces and parts together. It's very elaborate and deep. But the questions that I'm getting have to do with um, the authorship of Job and the timing of Job's writing. When you're a student of the Bible, um, part of understanding what the Bible means and how we, it ought to apply to our life today is understanding what was the intent of the author who wrote it and in what situation or occasion was it written and to whom was it written. You need these pieces of information so that you can determine how the original recipients of these works understood them to be communicated. This is, this is, the, the scriptures are, do not mean whatever you want them to mean. They do not mean different things today than they meant earlier. And in order for us to know how they apply today, which can be very different to applying 2,000, 3,000 years ago, uh, we have to start with getting to the meaning of the text itself. And so, you know, if you get any good text commentary, you're going to have a section on authorship. You're going to hear the traditions, um, the Hebrew traditions and the the Midrash and the Talmud and the, the different teachers of the law who believe different things about the source. You're going to read about um, the timing when it, when a book was thought to have been written. Uh, and you're going to hear about who it was written to and for what purpose. And that's when you can begin to get to the heart and the core of the message. And then that can that heart and core of the message can then be applied to our situation today. And um, so this is a good one with Job. So there's a couple of features about Job um, that make this a little tricky. So Job does not have um, a claim to authorship in its texts. So a lot of the scriptures you're going to open to are going to start with um, the authors naming themselves, like the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. So there's a claim of, of authorship. Job does not have that. So when you are looking at Job, you either have to go with historic tradition of what people have believed uh, was the author of Job, or you have to say, who would know the things that are happening and how were they given? And then who would be the person who is able to, um, to reveal these things to the reader. And so there's ways inside of a text that you can kind of determine who the author was. So if you do a little quick Google search or open up a commentary on Job, you'll find out that there have been several suggestions, uh, put forward about plausible authors, one of which is Moses. So the kind of Jewish kind of presiding Jewish response, response and belief has been that Moses was the author of Job. Um, some people would put forward the concept that Job himself was the author. And um, others would say Elihu. So Elihu is the fourth friend of Job who is inserted in the later chapters of the book, not named among the friends who came to visit Job in the early chapters of the book. And the, the back fourth of the book largely consists of his monologue before God intervenes. Um, and then when God speaks with Job, God makes reference to the futility of Job's friend's advice and has Job intercede and mediate on their behalf at the end and Elihu's not named by God. So there's been some some debate among scholars about whether Elihu and his contribution was actually like a later addition. And so if you would have collapsed out the whole section of Elihu and just finished um, the passage before Elihu begins speaking and then transitioned to the end, the book still works. And so some people would say, oh, this whole section was a later edition. Um, and that's possible. Um, there's other in indicators, language indicators in there. There's a there's a different scale of vocabulary that's used in the Elihu monologue that could indicate that. It also could just indicate that Elihu spoke differently than the other friends of Job. Um, so you can't really tell that. Um, but he is thought by some to be the author. Uh, and then, of course, there's the possibility that there's just an unknown author to Job. One of the features about Job um, that is kind of lost in English translations is that its form of Hebrew is quite different. I used to say quite old because my understanding of Hebrew is limited. And uh, what I heard initially was the form of, of Job is like an older version of Hebrew. There's a lot of words in there that aren't used elsewhere in the rest of the scripture. And so 
kind of like we would think of King James being a little hard for us to read as compared to the common English version of our Bibles is kind of the feel you get if you're a Hebrew reader and speaker when you read Job. It's kind of like Shakespearean, but it's also possible that that was stylistic. So there's lots of words that you and I know if we were to read them in you know, a journal or in some kind of um, artwork that we would know what it means, but we don't use it every day. And so just because uh, Job is rich in words that are not commonly used does not mean that it was necessarily old, um, but it could be. So some scholars would posit that the oldest books of the Bible would be uh, Psalm 90, which was written by Moses, and then Job, and then Genesis. And so all of that's going to go back to about 1500 B.C., uh, around the time of the Exodus. And so there was oral tradition that existed before that, but the actual writings that we have begin with Moses. And then other scholars would say that Job was this um, pre-Mosaic um, like revelation of, of wisdom. And that fits the geography. So the friends of Job are said to be representing the wisdom of Edom, the wisdom of the East. And the, ge- geographically, e- Edom was in the South uh, and West and so the East would have represented a different time period when the Edomites would have been known by a different name. The Edomites came to be different uh, people, and that's a little tricky to, to trace. But the, the point is there's some contention about the age and the authorship of Job. Now, like many books in the Bible who, that are in there, they're included without n- known authorship uh, or occasion. The reason they're there is because they're so obviously divine revelation and Job is no different. So one of the questions we got to had to do with the question of Job's introduction, where there is a scene in which um, no human was involved in a heavenly conversation between the the Satan, the adversary, the enemy, and God himself in the royal courts. Now, And so you go, okay, who wrote this? How did they know this happened? Where did this come from? And this brings us to a, like a really important um, thought experiment when it comes to the scriptures. It's easy for some of us to think, okay, God wrote the Bible. And so the manner in which it came about doesn't really matter. It's divinely inspired. And, you know, here we got it. And that's what matters. And so we don't give a lot of thought to it. And others who are more kind of Western humanistic, naturalistic in their tendencies want to know, okay, can I trust this? When was it written? Was it written by who said they wrote it? You know, are there inconsistencies in it? What's the Let's walk through all these things. So you have to take you have to take some historical approach to understanding authorship and occasion and uh, authorial intent. But then you also can go into the actual text itself and let the text tell you things about itself that aren't being stated overtly, right? So the whole premise of Job is that there are these three variations of human wisdom that are that take what we can experience and what we know to be true through revelation. And we project those things onto a version of God that is limited in its scope and that does not answer and solve all paradoxes in life. And so when people suffer because God is just and brings judgment and he's a a father who disciplines when people suffer, that is indication that they have done wrong and God is bringing about Uh, divine judgment or justice upon them and that he's willing for them to repent and desirous for them to repent. And so if they'll acknowledge their sin, then he will lift his, his judgment or wrath or discipline and instruction, and then uh, restore them to a a place of blessing when they're walking. And so there's a lot of ideas about God that are based in truth, but then coalesce into kind of like judgmental paradigms that we then universally apply to people in every situation. And Job, the purpose of Job is to to really gut those, to go, nope, nope, God, there's a whole lot more going on than you don't know about, and it's not possible for you to come to right conclusions about what God is doing, what a person has done. There's things that are beyond your knowledge, and you can't surmise from the few things you do know everything that could be known. And so it's Job is meant to really humble us and remove judgmentalism and also um, not not make us self-righteous and uh, indignant or resentful towards God when things don't go the way that we presume they should based on our behavior. So there's a lot that's going on in Job. But Job makes no sense without the revelation of the reason for Job's testing. And that comes through the sovereign narrator in details that are kept from Job and from his friends, um, but are revealed to the reader. So you know why Job is suffering, and it's not any of the reasons why his friends presume that he's suffering. 
And if you if they knew what you knew, then they wouldn't be saying the things that they're saying. And that's the whole point. And even for Job, you're kind of like rooting for him. Like, Job, you got this. No, you are right. No, this is going to be all right. Like, this, there's, there's a bigger picture going on here. And this is meant to be, the, the, I mean, the gift of Job to the world is that we ought to come to be willing to be surprised by God, to be faithful and dependent upon him and not be judgmental towards other people, to be comforters for those in suffering, to be able to teach that which is good, but not stand um, as judge, jury, and executioner over the, over people who are uh, walking through suffering as though we know all of the details that went into their suffering. So this is the point of Job. So whoever wrote Job was getting this point across really beautifully and really brilliantly. And so it's an incredible book that all of us should be very well acquainted with. Um, it seems to make the most sense to me that it was written by Job. Um, there's He's obviously a brilliant person. He's writing from a personal experience, and the idea would have been that he went through this great calamity, and then on the backside of it was, um, you know, informed by God that this is the reason, you know, after the dialogue. And so uh, it's written in a kind of poetic form, um, kind of like it's made for the stage, and uh, it would be beautifully acted out with just a few characters, and uh, would be very compelling to, to see kind of like Shakespeare. If you try to read Shakespeare, it's like, I don't know a lot of these words and I'm losing track of what's going on here. But when you go see a, a play that, you know, the actors have memorized the context and the, the the settings and the tone of voice, like those things like help you to close the gap on the words that you don't know. And so once you get a kind of a big picture of what the play is about, then it can start to make more and more sense as you read it two and three and four and five times. And Job's kind of the same way. And so the message of Job is clear. The beauty of Job is incredible. Uh, the authorship is unknown. I'm inclined to think that it was Job himself. I'm open to the fact that it's a, a book of antiquity and predates a lot of the other um, scriptures in writing, but I don't think that's necessarily um, like worth a hill worth dying on. Could easily be from the fifth century BC um, and just have has a Hebrew style that's you know really ornate and, and beautiful and kind of made for the stage. Um, but this is kind of how we evaluate these things. Ultimately, God himself is the one who has divinely inspired the writing of Job, and that's been recognized by uh, the faithful followers of Yahweh through the centuries and for Christians alike. And so uh, we acknowledge that God is the source behind the human author, and we don't know exactly who the human author is, but regardless, whether it's Moses, which seems unlikely to me, or Job, which does seem more likely to me, like ultimately it doesn't affect the meaning and the value of the book itself. And so uh, those are great questions, um, and we don't have, like, solid answers to them, but um, this is the way we ought to read the Bible. So I just absolutely love that these are the questions that are emerging um, as you're reading through them. So thanks for sharing those. Any thoughts? Um, I, I, I'm i just like, like some of this stuff, like the historical context always yep. like puts me to sleep. Yeah. Like, like, cause I'm, I'm just so bent on what did God say? Right. Like, you know, we have it as a collection of these are, this is God's word. Mm-hmm. So like, what did the dude say? Yep. Yeah. So I'm just like meant on that. Like, let's, I'm ready to dive in. Like, yeah. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's so true. A lot of people aren't really, not, not really concerned about that. Um, and it isn't very practical. There's not like practical, um, losses that are made reading Job. If you know, know, or don't know that, you know, so it doesn't really matter. But like when you get to passages, like, you know, really troubling passages, like in Timothy, where Paul's saying women shouldn't speak and you go, okay, uh, what? And then when you start holding that to other scriptures, okay, women shouldn't speak, but we, you just instructed them about how to pray and whether or not to have their heads covered. And so they're speaking there and there's prophecy and like, what do you mean? And so sometimes like the setting and the historical setting can actually completely change the meaning of the thing you're reading and can actually unlock something for you that's like super important. So yeah, Job doesn't really matter so much because it is essentially like it's entertainment with a, with a point. It's really like this beautiful, ornate work of art that actually brings you to go, wow, God is awesome, and I'm going to shut my mouth, and I'm going to be a friend who sits in silence, and I'm not going to judge other people. And that's awesome. 
And regardless of who wrote it and when it was written, that's the effect it's going to have. But there are other times when there's a lot more at risk. And so it is a, um, it's important, but you're right. Um, sometimes it's like, yeah, well, snooze. Yeah. Job's like disconnected. There's nothing else, you know, like whether it's Moses or like God himself wrote the book. Right. Like it's, it's a standalone piece. It is a standalone piece. It doesn't fit into the narrative of the Bible in any way. Like the characters, the setting, the places, the, it literally is standalone. You could put it in the Bible, take it out of the Bible and you would lose nothing um, in the manner in which it comes to you. So yes, absolutely. I would love, I would love it if, um, Angel Studios would do a Job presentation. Wouldn't that be cool? So we're watching, seeing all these different high quality Christian entertainment coming out, which is, man, we've had a lot of years with not high quality Christian entertainment. So it's very, making me very happy. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Catching up. The same thing with music, man. We had a, we had a good decade and a half there where there was just some like not great music coming out and uh there's a lot of people still writing music and i'm grateful for it because we don't want the songwriters to go silent um but man we've just had just we've been inundated with amazing songs and new and inspiring artists and that's just a blessing so we thank god for that Mm -hmm. so go go get them everybody everybody who's using their wares to to bring the good news of the gospel into our digital age and share it with the people who are who are transfixed by hollywood good job harnessing the power all right, uh, let's transition over to the Psalms. And we actually just have one question uh, from the Psalms from Rebecca. Uh, Psalm 12, verse 8, she says, feels like today's times. And this is the version she's quoted. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. And this sentiment uh, continues throughout the Psalms and in various places in the rest of the scriptures. And uh, it is true the, the ESV says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. And so I could use this as a launching pad to talk about the, the kind of false ideologies that are just taking off like a brush fire in our culture presently. Um, but this has been the case in every generation, not always the same way in the same place in the same people groups there have been um there have been awakenings and revivals happening at the same time that there's been genocide and fascism Uh, there's been you know just the worst of humanity alongside of the best of god's movement and that's bouncing around all over the globe and the reality is is that we are in a supernatural war in which god is bringing about his purposes and the the uh, defeated but uh, uncompletely judged enemy of God and the powers of darkness are working against that in every conceivable way. And in our generation, um, the enemy has really exploited a lot of nominal Christianity in America. I was looking at a map uh, this past week of the most densely um, Christian and growing Christian parts of the world, and America is way at the bottom. And so People are turning to faith in Jesus and becoming disciples in Central Asia and the Middle East and in China. I mean, at rates never before seen. And um, in America, it's just fall, we're just falling off the map. Uh, there's, al- there's always a faithful remnant. God's always at work. He's always where there's faith and God's word and God's spirit's alive. So, like, you, you never have a reason to give up hope. But we haven't seen the kind of cultural impact in, in America that, that you had seen uh, in previous generations, really around the time of the revolution. And then um, in the 19th century, we've seen some some real powerful movements of God that have started, but we're really running on the old momentum and it's out of steam. I mean, this train is coming to a, a grinding halt um, and we need new life. And so when you look as a Christian on a post-Christian world and you see the, t- the type of like anti-God ideology that's being pushed where everything's about identity and power structures and everybody's a racist and um, everything's unmoored from the traditions and institutions that have provided us the stability and wealth and prosperity we've experienced. It can be really disheartening, um, but it shouldn't be surprising because that's been the case in every generation. You know, when when Jesus sent out the disciples and ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, um, they, had the, uh, they had the initial kind of covering of being a sect of Judaism and Judaism had some protections under the Roman Empire, but very quickly, the, the Jews pushed the Christians out from underneath of that protective covering, and they were, they were sought to be extinguished by the Roman Empire. And there was, there was two and a half centuries of persecution and death, and um, it wasn't until the, the fourth century that we started to see um, Christianity explode on a, on a world scene. 
um, at the end of the Roman Empire. So like we're going to go through seasons where it's it's rough and we don't get to pick what generation we're in. We get to we get to be faithful right where God set us and and walk in the the integrity of faith in God and stand up for what's right. And for some people, that's going to mean martyrdom and other people that's going to be you're on a cruise going through what everybody else is going through during revival or enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. Um, but don't be discouraged. Yeah, there's some crazy stuff out there. What we really need is the tools to be able to distinguish the good from the bad, to be able to acknowledge uh, where those who don't believe in God um, are seeking to answer the problems of the world with a godless ideology and to be able to identify the things about them that they're getting right because of what God has said, where there's injustice and inequality and uh, oppression and be able to call that out along with them, but then to present a better a better ethic and a better course and uh, and to have something that's consistent and that doesn't have as its solution to burn everything to the ground um, and to throw away the old norms. So I won't soapbox on that. I can I can talk about that ad nauseum, but yeah, and I feel like your your hope is in the living God who sees all of these things, presides sovereignly over everything and all of the evil. And you know what does he say? You know, leave the vengeance up to God. He's a faithful and just judge, and He will repay evil for evil, good for good. You know, we're covered by the blood of Jesus. Yes. So go us. Yeah. Praise go, the yeah, Lord. Yeah. We're on the winning team you know, we, here. We got the good stuff, uh-huh. the real stuff. And, you know, That's no right. matter how evil it gets, God is a present God. He is here. He sees, you know, he's presiding over all of it and he yeah. will justly judge at the right time. Kind of like we, we talked about in like six podcasts ago about he was waiting for the iniquity to get to that level before yeah. he would dish out his judgment. Yep. Yeah. He's working the long game here. He's super patient. I'm listening. I don't know. I'm I'm super fascinated by like um, quantum mechanics and um, this the this this science of the, the scale of the universe. And so anybody that writes on those things, I like to read and listen to. I mostly listen to, um, and it helps me to like get a picture of like how big and powerful God is. Obviously, they're not thinking about God. They're looking at creation and they're trying to deduce things and come up with solutions and theories that explain everything. But when I read those books, it like reminds me of like the immensity of God and the timelessness of God. Um, I'm not, I am not a like young earth creationist type that thinks God made the world in six literal days and everything's 10,000 years old. I I think that's not, not, not the right answer. Um, But I also don't think that everything's explainable by a big bang and biological evolution. I do think that God has been purposefully bringing about the world as it is in keeping with the scriptures revelation about uh, what happened and why it happened. It's just not trying to answer the question of how it happened. And so when I listen to these um, books and lectures from brilliant uh, uh, physics professors, quantum mechanics and all this kind of stuff, and I hear about how our universe acts and that it's 14 billion years old and how our earth was formed. And this is, you know, two and a half billion years ago, how long everything took. And I see like the the proactivity of God in forming a space where we can exist and where he can dwell with us and that it's going to, that it's going to, it's, it's moving towards its own eventual destruction that the moon is literally moving away from the earth at about an inch every 100 years. And that time was different 65 million years ago than it is today. And that none of us were here. And that through the, this, these processes that are just, just fascinating and phenomenal, God brought about life and he brought about human life very late in the story of creation and that at the right time Christ died for the ungodly and that when you look at the population of the world just a few hundred thousand humans existed between Adam and Eve and uh, Moses and then just maybe a million or maybe two before Christ came and since then now we have a, a planet with eight billion people on it heading towards 15 billion people, 20 billion people, and the good news of who God is and what God's done is reverberating all through this heavily populated world, and we're moving one generation after the next, after the next, after the next. And I go, man, God knows what he's doing here. And so, you know, obviously we only get one shot at life, and so we get pretty myopic on our lifetime and really on our decade we're in and our year and our day and our plans and our paycheck, Uh, but God's working a long game. And so I just want to live my life knowing him, accepting the time period that he placed me in, the geographies put me in, the people that he's placed me in relationship with, the calling that he's put on my life. I just want to be faithful in this little part of this tiny corner of the big picture of God's world 
and be satisfied in knowing him and walking with him and just getting to watch in, in my lifetime, in real time, the transformation that's taking place um, that God is bringing through faith in Jesus and the transformative power of his Holy Spirit and, and do whatever it is that he calls me to do. And uh, that's going to fit somehow into the, the overall human story that is God's big story. And, and um, that's, that's where the, the passion for me and the, and the joy for me comes. And so it's a whole lot bigger than us. <laughs> and it's exciting. So, yes. And, and it's also really encouraging that when we read the Psalms, as old as they are and as disconnected as they are from the world that we live in, the human experience is still the human experience. And so, yes, we look around and we see... Uh, the evil, the evil are going unpunished, and bad things happen to good people. But um, God's at work through all of it, and He's the one who brings everything together, and we can trust Him to do that. Have you, have you? This might be an aside, but ends up in a cool way. But like, have you heard of like string theory or M theory? Do you mm-hmm. like listen to that stuff? Yeah, I was just listening to um, Super String Theory last night before bed. Okay. The multiple dimensions required for everything to be based on vibrating filaments. <laughs> yeah. Which is interesting. Like, right. So like M theory is like all the math works out. I had to like give a presentation on that when I went to riddle. Oh, cool. But like the, so it's like the theory is that there's a string that's like vibrating, right? Like that's what's happening. And that's like the, the most basic part of everything. Yep. And it'd be interesting, like regardless of whether it took six days, whether it took 6 million years for God to create stuff, right. that, um, voice yep. is a vibration. Yeah. And so God's speaking things into existence yeah. and they're still vibrating today. Yeah. So it's like an interesting it thing is. that I always thought about. Uh, it's like, so cool. Yeah. It's a, it's funny to um, uh, the whole, even the whole dimensions thing. Cause like the scriptures speak to us living in, a, a, in space time in a four dimensional reality. That's our experience is limited to a four dimensional reality, three dimensions of space and one of time. And so, you know, the idea is if you tell someone to meet you on the fourth floor of the, a building on fifth, Avenue in Manhattan, then that's the coordinates in, you know, the three dimensions of space, but you have to tell them what time to be there. Cause if they're there on Tuesday and you're there on Thursday, you won't be there at the same time. Right. So you have these four dimensions we live in, but the, in order to understand the world as it's operating at the subatomic level, there's other, I mean, there's a whole world that is infinitely small that we're completely imperceptive of. And we get, we get the idea of that and the fact that we wash our hands and we understand germs and bacteria and it's microscopic, but you can still see it if you look under a microscope, but the world of super strings or M theory is smaller than we can even know. And so we have, we're testing mathematic through thought, um, experiments, right. To even consider it. But at the, at the essence of it, what does it tell us? Oh, there's, there's whole dimensions that we are imperceptible of that are happening right around us, but that we have no control over. Um, and that even break the laws of physics as we know them, you know, the laws of the forces of gravity and the weak and strong electromagnetic force. And like those forces like guide the print. I mean, we are able to calculate how to get rocket ships to the moon and back based on these realities. Like they're that built into the system. And yet at the, at the level of quarks and neutrons, the world operates completely differently. And it operates in a way that's kind of consistent with the miracles, Right. Even like the idea of Jesus and the disciples like being in one place and then being gone and like popping up in another place. Like that happens at the subatomic level all the time. And so like the these theories of everything are trying to square a world of the infinitely small with a world of the infinitely large. And how come the math doesn't work the same way at both levels? And so the answer is strings, vibration. And isn't it ironic? Like this is the way that God has revealed that he's caused all things to be. <laughs> <laughs> so great. That's interesting. One of the other interesting things that I think about physics is like that we live in a science culture and yeah. it's the laws of physics are not actually laws. They're just like observable things. We've observed that, you know, uh, gravity works at 9.8 X squared plus whatever, you mm-hmm. know, and they're like, there's always that factor of like, plus God, like if God chooses to intervene, because yeah. it's only an observable thing. It's not our observations don't govern what we see, right? like how we kind of like sit in the science world. We're like, oh, science is king. Like, but right. it's not, it's just observing what's happening. And okay, we, we're pretty good at this. Unless God intervenes, we're, this rocket will go to the moon right. and back. Yeah. But like, you know, there's always like, oh yeah, that why did the sun go back down six steps? Oh, that was God. Uh-huh, and yeah. you know, like, oh, the, like where'd the, where'd the extra bread come from and the fish? Uh-huh. Oh, that was God. Like that was like the plus God thing that what did God choose to intervene on based on what we observe or not? Right. Yeah. And God, God's the author of it all. That's the thing too. That's so fascinating. I was listening to, like I said, that, that, um, lecture and he was talking about, um, these forces and he, he even used the phrase, like we have these forces that hold all things together. 
we have like dark matter and dark energy and there's the stuff that we can't see but it's there and it's what's it's what's connecting everything together and i'm like i know this <laughs> that's in colossians <laughs> like <laughs> wow scripture is right <laughs> yeah god, god told god told us that he I, you know in him all things are made and and uh he holds all things together by the word of his power actually so that the fact that there's like unobservable but knowable uh forces that are holding the creation in order and that have these capacities to completely break all the rules and change things in an instant without upsetting the course of human events uh, is like, that's kind of mind blowing. It's also interesting. It's really sad because if you study uh, the Renaissance and kind of the beginning of the scientific method, the reason we have science is because of Christians, religious people who understood the world to be well-ordered and made by God and so the whole the whole idea of laws, the laws of nature, and even our founders said, you know, nature's the laws of nature and nature's God. Um, science and and God, faith in God, like went hand in hand for centuries. And it was only after you know we built on the shoulders of great thinkers and came to great conclusions that it entered the mind of the latest kind of nineteenth and century, nineteenth and twentieth century scientists that you know, science itself eliminates the need for God or the existence of God, which is really silly, but that's kind of the, been the, the water that we swim in uh, in the 21st century and anybody that grew up in the 20th century to be, to be like, oh yeah, science is, it's like a new, it's like a new religion. Like we have the scientists as the new priest class and the universe is the deity and, you know, we all trust the science and follow the science and you get crazy people like Anthony Fauci saying, that he is the science and just trust him and do what he says. And it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. No, that's not how any of this works. So, yeah, it's cool that like a lot of, I think, uh, Christian scientists made like really cool discoveries, like the Hubble yeah. telescope, mm-hmm. that dude with the Hubble, yeah. like Christian dude. And I'm like looking him up right now. It's just like Robert Boyle and who else oh, did yeah. I see in here? Like mm-hmm. Michael Faraday. Like yep. that's like a big, like electricity, you know, Faraday shield. That's what keeps the radiation inside of your microwave and not in you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, all these people are like, some of these guys are huge, yep. but like they believed in that stuff. Yep. And like, God was like, hey, you want to see some extra stuff yep. out here in space yep. or wherever, Check whatever they're out. doing? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. It's, it's fascinating and brilliant. And I love that we can apply um, this type of thought to creation through science. And we can also apply this type of thought to the scriptures. And there's a science to understanding the scriptures. There is There are tools that you need um, to, to get out what God put in and what he wants to give to you, um, there, there's, you need to active, activate your brain and be asking those questions. And so I just absolutely love that we're getting this type of feedback. And um, let me remind you to send the questions. Um, obviously, I'm, I'll never have a shortage of things to talk about, but our desire really is to engage with uh, our church community. And so um, if you haven't sent in a question, don't be afraid. There's no, the only dumb question is the unasked question. So we won't mock you on the podcast. Um, regardless of what your question is, we want to do this together. All right, let me attempt to connect us back to Rebecca's question. Okay, go for we've it. We've gone on this giant scientific aside. We but, did. So in, in verse 7, uh, you, O Lord, will keep them, right? Mm-hmm. You will preserve him from this generation forever. I was like, I'm wondering, like mm-hmm. when I first saw that, I was like, is this messianic? And I was like starting to look like, because where does mm-hmm. the, like in Hebrew, like, you know, typically plural and singular things match up. Yep. And uh, so I was like, you, O Lord, will keep them. And he's talking about his words from yep. verse 6. Yep. But then I was like, where's the him from? Yep not you will preserve them. He's like, you will preserve him. And I was yep. like, who's him? Who's the singular being in this one? Yeah. So yep. like what thoughts, any yeah. topical thoughts? So, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, um, it's not scientific, but one of the like methodologies that is used in biblical studies is to use the interpretive methods of the new Testament writers to understand the way they interpreted the old Testament. And one of the things that's tricky is that new Testament writers would regularly reach back to a psalm and claim that psalm to be prophetic and speaking of Christ and would grab two verses or one verse completely out of the context of the psalm and like none of his bones will be broken and like oh what what like where did that come from and but sure enough on the cross what was typical when it was time to speed up the process and sun was going down on Shabbat what do you do you break the legs so the, the person on the cross can no longer push themselves up and they suffocate in a matter of minutes and when they go to break Jesus' legs, he's already dead. And 
So none of his bones are broken, and instead a, a, a spear goes into his side, and blood and water come out, and you get all these scriptures that end up being fulfilled, you know, about um, him who pierced them who pierced him, and the the water and the blood, and there's all this stuff that you're like, well, this is in the Psalms, and so the New Testament writers, I'm assuming, carried along by the Holy Spirit because they're not really using like a, like a consistent hermeneutic to like evaluate, you know, authorial intent and readership. They're going, hey, these verses that are in here that were hard to understand, that's actually like prophetic about the Messiah. So that's a that's a real window, real tool in our tool- toolbox we have to ask. Like when we have some pronoun confusion, the ESV actually flattens that confusion out by changing the hymn to us. You, O Lord, will keep them, your words, you will guard us from this generation forever. And so that's, again, this is where you get into the interpretive method to go, Okay, what's what's the tr- the translators here, and when they don't have a word for word translation, what are they using to come to the conclusion they are to give it to us in the form that we are? And so, if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, you can grab three or four different English translations and see the variety and start to ask the questions why and and dig into it that way. But yes, I absolutely believe that the Psalms are peppered with messianic references, and it would appear the New Testament writers also saw it that way and included those in their writings for our benefit. So beautiful, beautiful and brilliant. And it's just a reminder, all this stuff is not about science. It's not about politics. It's not about culture. It's about Jesus. And he does miracles. And the miracle that he does most consistently is in the human heart, the, the faith and the humility to listen to him, to learn from him, to let him become your teacher. If you let Jesus be your teacher, he will end up being your savior and your king and your life will change forever. So thanks for joining us on this journey of learning. We're enjoying it, and uh, we look forward as we move into Ecclesiastes and and following that we're going to get some great questions, and uh, we will see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, Find us online at joinwithjesus.org.